Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's Wednesday, September 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon on Monday granted former President Trump's request to appoint a special master to review documents seized during the raid at Mar-a-Lago. With her decision, Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, has also waded into the messy politics of the whole situation as many quickly criticized the ruling. Zoe Tillman, senior reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for what to know about the special master and its impact. Next, we'll tell you about all the backlash to quiet quitting. It started as a movement among office workers to do just the bare minimum and draw more work-life boundaries. Detractors say it can cause more laziness and even hurt the performance of other employees. Catherine Dill, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why people are hating on quiet quitting. Finally, you may have seen them strolling on a sidewalk near you, but delivery robots may not be ready for prime time just yet. A pilot program in four cities looking at the impact of these delivery bots determined that in a lot of cases, it was the failure of local infrastructure that proved difficult for them to succeed. They worked in more controlled environments, but might not be ready for more critical tasks such as delivering medication. Joanne Muller, transportation correspondent at Axios, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The shameful raid and break-in of my home, Mar-a-Lago, was a travesty of justice. They rifled through the First Lady's closet drawers and everything else, and even did a deep and ugly search of the room of my 16-year-old son. Joining us now is Zoe Tillman, senior reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Zoe. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about what's going on with former President Trump. On Labor Day, we saw Judge Eileen Cannon give the former president a big legal win for him. So this is uh, to impose a special master to go over all those documents and top secret documents, all that stuff that the FBI raided at Mar-a-Lago. So this is kind of a win for him. Uh, She also said that the Justice Department has to temporarily stop using those documents in its criminal investigation of former President Trump. So a kind of a big pause on all of that while this gets started. So Zoe, tell us a little bit more about what this means. And then we'll talk about kind of the political controversy surrounding this, because nobody's ever happy when some of these types of decisions get made. So in practice, what Judge Cannon did was, as you said, put a pause on whatever work the Justice Department was doing with the documents that were seized. And this is you know, thousands and thousands of pages, several hundred of which have classified markings on them, some at the highest level of classification that the government uses, top secret. 
And what she said was that Trump had made out enough of a case that he has an interest in the fate of what was seized by the FBI. And there are special circumstances here that this is an unusual case, that the potential risks to him as a former president and given all the public scrutiny are especially high. You know, so to ensure the perception of fairness at a minimum, the judge concluded that he was right to request an outside third party to come in and go through these documents to see if, you know, there's attorney client privilege, executive privilege. The Justice Department had said that this was wholly unnecessary, that they had a team already doing a review for attorney client privilege that had already flagged a number of documents to go over with the president and his lawyers. They argued that he didn't have standing to be in court for most of this, because as a former president, you know, these documents don't belong to him. To the extent they're government records, right. they belong to the United States government, and he doesn't have an interest in them. You know, and I think the other big issue, finally, that was at play here is the Justice Department is part of the executive branch, and they argue that even if there were materials in here that were covered by executive privilege, Trump has no legal grounds to stop the executive branch from looking at executive materials. But the judge felt was persuaded by Trump's case here. So she's ordered a special master to come in. Who that person will be, we don't know. Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department have until later this week to meet and attempt to come up with some agreement on who that person should be. Ultimately, it'll be up to the judge and also to determine sort of the scope of that review. That's what I was going to ask, too. You know, who gets that final say? So I guess the Justice Department and Trump's lawyers kind of have to come to a happy medium. But the judge, Judge Eileen Cannon, she's the one that has the final say on this. And this kind of leads into that next part, you know, the politicization of this whole thing. So we know that Judge Eileen Cannon is a former Trump, is a a Trump appointee, and uh, she belonged to the Federalist Society. There's a lot of things that going on uh, on that side of things that a lot of people are poking at now, too. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think any time a judge rules in a politically sensitive case, you know, there's always value in asking, you know, what their background is, where they came from, what kind of background and thinking and training and expertise they bring to a given case. And part of that, you know, is political. Judicial nominees are inherently political in that the president chooses them. Typically, it's less dominant at the district court level, you know, these are mostly cases where they're not creating law, they're not setting law, they're not setting precedent. So politics tend to be less of a factor, but they can be. So at the point that the judge sided with Trump, there was a lot of criticism that this was out of a, a loyalty to him or the Republicans and their party generally. There were complaints that she was sort of bending over backwards to find the legal foundation for him to be in court to then rule on his request for a special master. And the president who appoints you, it doesn't mean you can't hear a case. There are plenty of judges who have ruled in cases involving Trump, and some of them haven't ruled for him. Certainly not a guarantee (laughs) that he's going to win just because the judge was appointed by him. But it's certainly, um, given the Trump administration's focus on the judiciary, I think, has really added more of a political layer to their work even after he's left office. And, you know, even in her confirmation hearing, she was asked about loyalty to then-President Donald Trump, you know, as a lot of judges were probably asked about that. And we know President, former President Trump kind of makes it a thing to say, you know, judges are politically motivated against him when they don't rule his way. But she was, you know, in this class of uh, judges that were approved, largely in part to Majority Leader at that time, Mitch McConnell. You know, they were really transforming the judiciary side of things by just trying to get as many judges as they could approved. 
That's right. You know, it, it's worth noting that Judge Cannon was one of the last judges approved, confirmed by the Senate with some bipartisan support. I think it's worth also saying, you know, she wasn't one of the most contentious nominees, but she was confirmed after the election and after outlets had called Joe Biden as the winner of the election in November 2020. And it's it was it's unusual for sort of the losing party if they control the Senate to proceed with sort of the losing president's nominees at that point during the lame duck period. But Mitch McConnell had made no secret that putting judges on the bench for these lifetime appointments was the top priority for him throughout Trump's time in office. Then it was back during the 2016 campaign, Trump's pitch to Republicans who were maybe a little queasy about him mm -hmm. was, you know, think about judges. This has been just at the top of the list in his pitch to Republicans and in talking about the work of his administration. It, it's just been the priority right. outwardly, you know, publicly. They've talked about that. So it's not a secret. Zoe Tillman, senior reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And your management should know as you move up the feeding chain, if you want to be recognized and eventually be paid more, it's because you did exactly what you were told to do and then even more. Joining us now is Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. My pleasure. All right, let's talk about quiet quitting. I've been wanting to talk about this for some time since the news kind of started breaking about this. So it's kind of this little movement among office workers trying to draw better work-life boundaries. And for basically what a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm not quitting my job. I'm just not going to go above and beyond. I'm going to do the bare minimum, do what's required and kind of leave the rest of it, right? I'm going to not stress so much about it. But man, has this drawn a big backlash on both sides of it. People that support it, managers and, and business leaders saying, hey, this is just more people being lazy. Catherine, tell us a little bit more about it because uh, people have very strong feelings about this. They do. And, you know, there's sort of as many definitions of quiet quitting as there maybe are people who identify as quiet quitters. You know, for right. some folks, like you mentioned, it's just sort of coasting, it's phoning it in. You know, for others, it's saying I'm meeting expectations, but, you know, I'm working nine to five. I'm not lying awake at night, grinding my teeth about work-related anxiety work is my job and this is my life and they've drawn better boundaries. But like you said, you know, there's been just as broad a spectrum of reactions as there have maybe been <laughs> initial definitions of quiet quitting, which ranges, yes, from career coaches and executives who say, this is not the way to get ahead. This is not how to get what you want. This is not how to build a successful career to workers saying, what do you mean this is a name? I've been doing this for years. Yeah. <laughs> this is just called having a healthy definition between work and life and not letting one overwhelm the other. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem, obviously, is the name quiet quitting. It implies I'm on my way out is what that implies. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's not necessarily true. Part of this whole thing that we went throughout the pandemic, uh, the great resignation, all of that was people trying to get that work life balance. That's why remote work became such a big thing. But now that we're going back and people are just feeling like they want to maintain that, what they might have held on to already, it's tough. So let's go with the obvious one, right? Business leaders, a lot of these uh, people are saying, you know, this is the worst way to do it. It can promote laziness. And you want people to going above and beyond on projects and, and different things at the workplace. It's going to make the company better. It's going to make you better. You know, it's that hustle culture. Let's work hard and get it done. And they say this is the complete antithesis to that. Yeah, I mean, and, and some people have argued that it might be contagious as well. You know, if you've got people on your team who 
have their feet up, so to speak, and there's no penalty for that. What happens when your workers who are really invested, who are efficient, who are going the extra mile, look around and see that? You uh, guys got some quotes, I guess, from Ariana Huffington, who was talking about this, too. And she said that, you know, I'd much rather somebody be up front, said, I'm going to give you 100 percent when I'm working, but I have boundaries for my work life balance. That's probably a better way to approach this than just kind of coasting on by. She drew a good distinction there that there is a difference between saying I'm going to do the bare minimum and saying I'm going to do this job, I'm going to give it my all, but then I'm going home at the end of the day, whatever that happens to mean, <laughs> literally or figuratively in this world of hybrid and, and remote work. And, you know, she also pointed out that even if you are just sort of happily coasting through eight hours a day, there's probably something you could be doing where you would feel more engaged and still be able to maintain those boundaries. You spoke to some people, too, who say, hey, why wouldn't I do this? You know, I'll work my ass off. And then um, let's say it comes time for a work review and they say, hey, well, they're, they're just meeting the expectations anyways. So why would I go above, above and beyond if I'm not getting the recognition even when I do work hard? Right. They're saying, you know, I've seen what happens when I kill myself at work just to be told, good job. That was the expectation. Why would you go above and beyond just to be told that? that's fine, good job, that's it. And that's the argument that some workers are are really advancing. Just work in general and this work-life balance have been thrown for a loop so much because of the pandemic and, you know, what's going on through all that. Where do you see this going? There's a few things that are important to point out here. One is that, you know, the labor market, the job market is still pretty advantageous to workers. Understaffing is still a major issue at lots of companies, even as we see layoffs bubbling up in particular corners, most places are still saying, I can't hire the people I need. And so workers do still have some leverage. And that's something that both employers who are angry about this and workers who maybe are coasting could find a job that they would like better, could demand those things that they feel will improve their lives in a next position should really think about. The other thing, which one of the workers I spoke with pointed out, is that this doesn't work for everyone. You know, one of the employees I spoke with, a communications professional, said she was really dissatisfied in a job and she tried this and she found herself just sort of constitutionally unable to do this. She planned to just clock in, clock out. And she said it made her more frustrated, more dissatisfied. Work became even less meaningful. And so she was only left with one option, which was to actually quit. And so employers maybe need to consider who are those folks who aren't just going to coast, they're just going to leave when they're unhappy. Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. 
OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. They work really well, like on a college campus or something like that. But in a real city where there are terrible sidewalks, overgrown bushes, wide boulevards, that's what's happened in Detroit, where I happen to live. Joining us now is Joanne Muller, transportation correspondent at Axios and author of the Axios What's Next newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Joanne. Sure. Glad to be here. All right, let's talk about a, a fun little uh, story here, delivery robots. We're looking right now at a uh, pilot project that was happening in four U.S. Uh, cities. Unfortunately, it seems like they might not be quite ready for prime time just yet. My experience with these little delivery robots, I live in Los Angeles, so the ones that I've seen are the ones that are by Postmates. They're like little yellow robots with looks like eyes. They look kind of like the little Wally robot. I've seen those. I haven't gotten delivery from one of them, but I've seen them out in the streets. Sometimes I've seen them knocked over or just kind of navigating around pedestrians, things like that. But it seems that in a lot of these cases, it's not necessarily the technology that's failing, but the infrastructure. What we got going on in the real streets uh, might not let it operate to uh, the optimal uh, thing that it can be doing. So, Joanne, tell us what we're seeing in this uh, in these pilot projects. The four pilot cities were Pittsburgh, uh, Miami-Dade County, Detroit, and San Jose. And, you know, actually this project was originally intended to look at the effect of autonomous vehicles like robo-taxis, but that technology has taken a little longer to get going. And also during the pandemic, we saw this huge boost in demand for delivery. Mm -hmm. And so I think they rightly change their focus to these automated delivery robots, which, as you mentioned, a lot of us have seen here and there being tested. They work really well, like on a college campus or something like that. But in a real city where there are terrible sidewalks, overgrown bushes, wide boulevards, that's what's happened in Detroit, where I happen to live. The little robot had trouble getting across the uh, <laughs> the street in time before the light changed. And, right. You know, you think about that. That's true for humans as well. But you're right. Under these controlled environments, so far is where they're excelling. Once we get into the real stuff, uh, it's not the best. Well, you know, here's the problem is that the technology companies are very much focused on the robot itself, making sure it can see, making sure it knows where it is, it can move and so forth. There's a lot of technology that goes into that, right? But what a lot of these companies or cities that are deploying them forget to do is to ask the people who live in the city, hey, will this make your life better? And a lot of times the use case is a little fuzzy. So one of the big goals of this particular study, which was funded by the Knight Foundation, was to see what some of the socioeconomic impacts would be in these four cities, and in particular to try to get the community involved. And that means the average 
customer, the public, but also, let's say, the restaurants or retailers that might be using these robots? Like, what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve here, other than the fact that this is cool technology? <laughs> right. The cities in these pilot programs partnered with KiwiBot, so they make these sidewalk delivery bots. Were these tested with, like, fast food delivery, grocery delivery? Who did they partner with? Yeah, it was different in each of the cities, but generally speaking, it was restaurants and a couple of retailers, I think. So the planning officials for each of these cities had something to say about what neighborhood they wanted to try this in. So you had them delivering burritos and stuff like (laughs) that. But in all cases, they ran into some real world problems. And the big takeaway from all of this, I think, is that this technology is not really ready to be deployed as the like sort of critical missions like delivering meals or prescriptions, let's say, for the elderly. Because if they run into a bumpy sidewalk and fall over, that person doesn't get their meal or their medicine in time. What's next with all of this? Because there's going to be some new pilots beginning this year, it seems like. But these now will tailor back to the original plan, which was more of like robo taxis and things like that, which, you know, the delivery bots, right? Bigger impact on pedestrians, probably. These other autonomous vehicles, you know, bigger, uh, you know, impacting other cars on top of pedestrians. The Knight Foundation is continuing to fund this. The federal government is kicking in some other money uh, for various tests and pilots of this technology. So, you know, I think it's really good that we are trying to test this out in real world situations because there's definitely going to be problems and we have to figure them out now before we unleash these all over our cities. One step at a time, I think. Joanne Muller, transportation correspondent at Axios and author of the Axios What's Next newsletter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <laughs>